We are continuing this morning as we, to, to look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you have your Bible with you, turn over to Galatians chapter 6. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll be able to find that on page 1239. Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at uh, really at the consequences of the gospel in the life of believers, the life of not just individual believers, but all of us as a community. The false teachers in Galatia had taught that good works were a necessary part of earning life together with God. Particularly, specifically, uh, the, the good works of receiving circumcision. But Paul had abundantly even been bluntly clear in his rejection of that teaching. No good works are necessary for salvation if you have Jesus' blood. If Jesus' blood is covering you, there are no good works necessary for your salvation. And if Jesus' blood isn't covering you, no amount of good works will be sufficient for your salvation. But then what? What does life look like after you come to faith? Chapters 5 and 6 deal, in, in a real sense, deal with the question of Christian ethics. How should the Christian faith be lived out, particularly within the community of the faithful? Before I uh, read this morning's passage, we, of course, we need to ask for the Holy Spirit, because while this is God's Word, we are sinful enough, our reason is sinful enough that we will certainly misunderstand it if the Spirit doesn't restrain us. So let's go to Him together in prayer. If you're able, please stand while I pray and remain standing as I read from Galatians 6. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because it is truth. It is the essence, the definition of truth. And yet, our hearts are so hard. Our minds, our reason, our rationality is so twisted that even in looking at your truth, we will twist it all out of shape to mean what we want it to mean and not what you have told us in your word. So we pray, Lord Jesus, give us your spirit. Open our eyes to see your truth. Soften our hearts that we might receive it with humility and apply it faithfully. Be glorified in this your word. That your name would be lifted high and not mine and not this church's, but your name alone would be lifted high in the reading and the preaching of this your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Galatians 6. I'm going I'm to read from the beginning of the verse, or beginning of the chapter, rather, through verse 8. This is God's Word. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, death, destruction. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated.
throughout the borough of Manhattan in New York City, there is a translucent wire stretched from pole to pole to pole surrounding really the entire island, 18 miles and more of this wire. And most people have never noticed it. Uh, It is hard to imagine that anything literally hanging from utility poles across Manhattan, one of the most observed cities in the world, could be hidden. But here we are. This wire is called an erub, and it owes its existence to the Jewish Sabbath, or the Jewish conception of what the Sabbath should be. On the Sabbath, which in uh, modern Jewish understanding is viewed as a day of rest, observant Jews, uh, observant Jewish people aren't allowed to carry anything, books, groceries, even children, if they're outside the home. It's considered doing work if you carry anything outside the home. Inside the home, it's just part of the normal day. But uh, the Eruv, or Erub, encircles much of Manhattan, acting as a symbolic boundary that converts the very public streets of Manhattan into effectively the inside of a home. This allows people to freely communicate and socialize on the Sabbath and carry whatever they please without having to worry about breaking the Jewish law. As the writer Sharon Cohen explains, Eruvin are created by the sages of the Talmud to get around the traditional prohibitions on carrying house keys, prayer books, canes or walkers, and even children who cannot walk on their own. And New York City is not the only metropolis in the United States with an Erub. They are also in St. Louis and Atlanta and Baltimore and Chicago and Dallas and a number of other cities. Now, a cynic looking at this might wonder at the effort required to string wire around huge swaths of public space in order to allow adherents of a religion to do what the tenets of the religion would otherwise prohibit. Even some religiously minded observers might find it hard to imagine a God that wouldn't regard this practice as the flagrant concoction of a city-sized loophole, a way to get around God's law, a way to feel holier, to feel more right with God while doing exactly what we were going to do anyway. Now, you may not have put up 18 miles of wire around a city, probably not, but we do the same thing anyway. You, almost, you are almost certainly rationalizing your way around God's commands, rationalizing your sin so that you can do what you wanted to do anyway. We all do it. The hard part of this is recognize that that's what we're doing. In our passage this morning, Paul is continuing his answer to the question of Christian ethics, or as Francis Schaeffer's book put it, How Shall We Then Live?, We've seen clearly and in no uncertain terms that works are of no value in saving us, in justification. I preached last night at uh, Deb's memorial service, and as has been the case for me in, in this type of situation, sudden deaths, I, end up fi- I find myself asking the question, how much good works is enough for salvation? How can you know that you've done enough? The Judaizers in Galatia, the false teachers there, they had an answer. They said that you would have to keep the law of Moses, particularly with respect to circumcision. But, of course, by implication, keep the whole of the law of Moses. Uh, 
and then add the blood of Christ like the cherry on top of the sundae. Jesus was great in their minds. He could get you across that last yard or two after you've driven the 99, 98 yards down the field. He could get you that last yard that you just couldn't, couldn't quite get there yourself. But Paul adamantly rejects this picture of so-called salvation. As he teaches here in Galatians, as well as you know Romans and Corinthians and pretty much everywhere else in the New Testament, salvation is 100%, justification is 100% the works of Jesus, and 0% your works. Justification is 100% the works of Jesus and 0% our works. If you seek to earn favor with the Lord by your works, you got to go whole hog. you got to be 100% in on your works, and you better do it entirely on your own, and 0% Jesus works. That's the only two options. It's all or nothing either way. There is no middle way, whether you think of it as doing the best you can and then Jesus fills in the rest, or think of it as accepting Jesus' works with some addition of yours to fill up the little bit that's lacking. It's all Jesus or it's all you. That's the only two options. There is no third way. But then what? Now you've accepted Jesus, 100% of Jesus, and now you're justified. You are made, declared right in Jesus' sight, in the sight of the Lord who is the judge. Now what? Now that you've trusted Jesus' finished work to make you acceptable before the Lord, what should your life look like now? Can we really go live any way we want to, do whatever we want to, since Jesus has now purchased our salvation? I mean, after all, he paid for our sin past and present and future, so we can go do what we want, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, because Jesus paid for it. We got a blank check. Let's go. No, is the short answer. We can't do that. Uh, here's the thing. Everyone agrees that there is an ethical dimension or a responsibility to the Christian life. Paul's letter to the Galatians can effectively be boiled down to a single sentence. Don't put the cart before the horse. Don't put the cart before the horse. Good, good works are the cart. Grace is the horse. Good works are good, they, but they have no motive power. They have no ability to push forward at all. They can't take you anywhere when unhitched from the horse. If you put the cart first, I hope you're not planning to go anywhere because there's no power in your works. The grace of God demonstrated in the life and death and resurrection of Christ, on the other hand, is the most powerful thing in the universe. That's the horse. Hitch up the cart of good works behind the horse of grace, and you'll find your life moving along at a brisk clip. Now, as all metaphors do, this one eventually breaks down uh, because... With an actual cart and an actual horse, you can get around without the cart, right? You can just climb on the back of a horse and ride it someplace. Um, in the Christian life, it is at least theoretically possible to subsist entirely on grace with no change to your life at all. Theoretically possible. Grace is that powerful. But as James makes, especially James, makes clear and, and elsewhere in the New Testament, 
if the grace of God isn't actually changing your heart, if it isn't actually resulting from a changed heart into a changed life, if there isn't a change in you as the result of grace, then chances are very good that you're not actually hitched up to the horse at all. You're just sitting in the cart watching the sunset. This is Paul's emphasis in the final section of Galatians. He spent the majority of the book explaining justification that works cannot help you be saved. Salvation is not a position that works can fill. But there is a place for works in our life. And so he goes on from explaining that. He goes on to say this is the right position. This is where work should be hitched up in our lives. As Christians, we may not continue in sin that grace may increase. On the contrary, as Dutch theologian Herman Bavink once wrote, what we do must give evidence of who we are. What we do must give evidence of who we are. Now, what we do cannot make us who we are. That's, again, putting the cart before the horse. What we do results from and gives evidence for who we are. What we should be, what we should be, what should we be doing? Sorry, what should we be doing? Uh, Bavink defined ethics as the art of fruitful, godly living and dying well to God's glory. The art of fruitful, godly living and dying well to God's glory, which is great, but how in the world do we do that? What does that look like? Paul's answer in our passage this morning is not one that we're going to particularly like. It's habit. What you habitually do is who you are. We're looking for the shortcut, right? We want the give me the one thing, and if I just do that one thing that one time, then I'm good. But that's not the way the Lord has created us. That's not the way the Lord has designed our hearts and our minds to work. Habit consistency is how we are designed to work. In an interview once, actor Jeff Bridges was asked what advice he wished he had received at age 20. And this was his response. He said, I got the advice. All about habit, Jeff. You got to get into good habits. And I responded to him. I said, no, Dad, you got to live each moment. Live it as the first one and let it be fresh. And he responded, that's a wonderful thought, but that's not what we are. We are habitual creatures. It's about developing these grooves, the right grooves. And Bridges responded, you know, in the interview, he said, as I age, I see his point. What you practice is what you become. What you practice is what you become. The old saw says practice makes perfect, right? It's not quite accurate. Because if you practice the wrong thing over and over and over again, you're just training your brain and your muscles to do the wrong thing. If you're practicing throwing a baseball and you do it wrong over and over and over again, you're learning the muscle memory of throwing the baseball the wrong way. The more accurate version of that aphorism is practice makes perfect. 
What you practice is what you become. Paul uses the metaphor here of planting, drawing on what likely was a well-known proverb in the Greco-Roman world, whatever one sows or plants, that he will also reap. The seeds you put in the ground determine what's going to come up out of the ground. This is not a hard concept, right? If you want peaches, don't plant cherries. Plant peaches. If you want strawberries, plant strawberries. If you want grapes, you have to plant grapes, not goat heads. If you plant goat heads, when you walk out in the field looking for grapes, you're going to have a painful realization. Not only are you not going to have the grapes you were hoping for, goat head hurts when you step on them. Now, obviously, Paul isn't talking about actually planting a field, right? He's talking about tending the garden of your life. As one commentator put it this way, there shall be a strict conformity between a man's present character and conduct and his future condition, a correspondence similar to that which exists between sowing and reaping. The old saying is accurate. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Or a life, depending on how you heard it. What you do demonstrates and confirms who you are. What you practice is what you become. And these planting proverbs hold true in several dimensions. If you spread strawberry seeds, of course, you should expect to reap strawberries. That much is obvious. But it also applies to the amount of seed that you spread. If you sow a lot of strawberry seeds, chances are good that you're going to have a plentiful harvest. If you sow a tiny handful, a pinch of strawberry seeds, you may get some strawberries but probably not a whole lot. In this life, sin will produce punishment and faithfulness will lead to reward and the degree of punishment will be proportioned to that of the crime and the degree of the reward to the degree of holiness. What you sow is what you will reap. If you sow goat heads, why would you think you're going to reap grapes? To suppose that sin will not lead to punishment is as absurd as to suppose that goat heads will not produce goat heads. What does this actually look like in real life? John Stott put it this way. To sow the flesh is to pander to it, to cuss it and cuddle and pet it instead of crucifying it. The seeds we sow are largely thoughts and deeds every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, to nurse a grievance, to entertain an impure fantasy or wallow in self-pity. We are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying. Every time we consume pornography. Every time we take which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and then wonder that they do not reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. Who you are drives what you do, what seeds you plant. What you do, 
what seeds you plant confirms and grows who you are, which then produces more seeds that fall to the ground of your life and sprout and grow into more confirmation of who you are. Sowing to the flesh does not consist only in radical wickedness. Scottish pastor John Brown described it this way, The man who is entirely occupied with sensible things and present things, though he should not be ordinarily what is termed immoral, nay, the man who is strictly honest and honorable and punctiliously religious so far as external, external morality and religion go, who yet does not look at things unseen and eternal. That man, too, sows to the flesh. If you're doing the right external things, but they're not rooted in your heart, then what you've done is buy a bag of grapes and hang them on the trellis. And then called it a harvest. But those grapes that you hung on the trellis will be rotted and nasty within just a couple of days. Brown continues, Let him be as successful as his heart can desire in the attainment of pleasures and honors and the wealth of the world. What has he got? Nothing but corruption. You can be doing all the right things. And if it's not the fruit of your heart, it is nothing but corruption. Pretty straightforward so far. But there's another dimension to this. Say you do the work to till the soil well, to turn in fertilizer and nutrients into the ground, and you plant good seed in the field. You do all of the things you're supposed to do at the beginning to put good seed in the ground. So far, so good, right? You've planted your grapes to the very best of your ability, but then... You walk away and you ignore the field until harvest time. What are you going to get? What's going to happen? You may have a couple of grapes to harvest, maybe. Far more likely, especially in this area, what you're going to be walking over is a field of goat heads and dandelions, scrub bushes and other noxious weeds to get a meek and miserly harvest of grapes. It is not enough to have pursued faithfulness in your youth and then settled into a more comfortable life as an adult. You must tend the field, constantly rooting out the noxious weeds that sprout in your life, or what you harvest will not primarily be good fruit and may not have any good fruit in it at all. So what does it look like to sow good seed? To sow to the Spirit. Stott, again, lays this out well. Again, the seeds we sow are our thoughts and our deeds. We are to seek and to set our minds on the things of God, things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. By the books that we read, the company that we keep, and the leisure occupations that we pursue, we can also be sowing to the Spirit. Then we are to foster disciplined habits. There's that word again. Disciplined habits of devotion in private, and in public, in daily prayer and Bible reading, and in worship with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. All this is sowing to the Spirit. Without it, there can be no harvest of the Spirit and no fruit of the Spirit. Did you hear that? Without these things, there can be no harvest of the Spirit and no fruit of the Spirit. 
Who you are drives what you do. If you are in Christ, you should expect that there will be an outward manifestation of that reality in the thoughts and the words and the actions in, present in your life. Not perfectly in this life, to be sure. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But growing, trending in that direction as a plant grows up into maturity, so also does the fruit of the Spirit grow up into maturity. And what starts as the smallest seed in the life of the Christian will grow up into the largest bush. Trending in that direction. If you believe in Christ and your life does not show the fruit of the Spirit, if you believe in Christ and your life does not show the fruit of the Spirit, perhaps that's because you're busily sowing goat heads and asking the Lord to miraculously turn those goat heads into grapes. It just doesn't work that way. Now, if you're anything like me, Chances are you may be sitting there thinking, yes, that's absolutely right. I really wish Jane was here to hear this. I really wish John at work could hear this. Maybe I'll send him the link to that sermon. On the one hand, you may well be right. Jane and John may well need to hear this. It might be appropriate to share it with them. But that's not the point. The point is this, where are you sowing bad seed and expecting a good harvest? Where are you sowing to the flesh? Where are you who are sitting here today neglecting your field? Where is the Holy Spirit convicting you this morning? It may well be true that Jane and John need to hear this. So do you. So do I. Every single one of us have some part of our lives that we have at best ignored. And maybe even actively planted and nourished and fertilized sin in. Every one of us. The Holy Spirit wants your whole heart wants to root sin out of the whole thing, wants to clear the ground well. Not just the part that it's comfortable for you to give, the whole thing. Where have you refused to crucify your sin because you enjoy it? Where do you need to repent this morning of nourishing, of coddling, of cuddling with your sin, treating it like a beloved pet? Where are you nursing gossip and bitterness and impurity and sexual immorality and enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions and envy and things like these? Your garden may look well-tended from a distance, may look green and lush. But get closer. Look closer and it's all nettles and goat heads and dandelions. Every one of us, me, you, all of us, are guilty of snuggling with our sin when we should be crucifying it. Of putting up 18 miles of wire so that we can break the commands of the Lord and still call ourselves holy, still call ourselves faithful. If you are a Christian, 
Run to Christ with every step of your life. When you find a weed growing in your life, a sin growing in your life, don't ignore it. Don't leave it be because you like the pretty yellow of the flower or the fun of blowing away the fairy puffball. Dig it out. Destroy it. In Christ is who we are. That is our identity. But if that is true, that identity must necessarily grow up into a beautiful harvest. If you are a Christian, that should be the trajectory that your life is on. Again, I'm not saying you're going to get perfect in you know, the next 24 hours or any time before Jesus calls you home. You're going to be rooting weeds out for the rest of, you, of this life. That's the reality of where we are. But you're going to get further with rooting those weeds out if you actually root the weeds out. If you just sit around waiting for the harvest, you're not going to enjoy the harvest. If you're in Christ, you will go to be with Him at the end of your, your life. But your harvest might not be as enjoyable as you hope. Might not be as fruitful in a good way as you hope. If you're a Christian, rest solely in Christ for your justification, but don't stop there. If you're not a Christian, you cannot earn your way into heaven by your good works. You have no seeds to plant other than weeds. You've got nothing there, and it's not just the weeds, it's the nasty, prickly, disgusting weeds that smell like rot. That's all you've got to plant if you're not a Christian. Run to Christ. Trust His good works to give you a place. Trust His death to obliterate the weeds that you've been cultivating. Rest in Christ's finished work to earn your place with God. Your works can't add anything to His. But having rested in Him for salvation, don't be content with a field full of weeds. Plant good fruit. Tend it. Cultivate it. And enjoy the fruit that grows. Let's pray.